You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week, we feature one of this country's most unique and controversial broadcasters, Keith Olbermann. A fellow named Doug Stern, who was the who was the general manager of WMVP, um, and he, I believe, he called my agent, having said, you know, the guy we'd really like to have do our afternoon drive time here, as we reconceptualize this radio station, is somebody like Keith Olbermann. So why don't we start with Keith Olbermann and see if he's interested? He was a lightning rod for ESPN. He was a different kind of lightning rod for MSNBC. Keith Olbermann, along with Dan Patrick, galvanized a hungry sports audience and brought one network to greater prominence with imaginative and sometimes ingenious sportscasts. He then donned a different hat as a news commentator, creating an irreverent program that became a signature of that network. During a 40-year run that really hasn't ended, Olbermann has endured with biting wit, brilliant writing, and certainly the ability to create some havoc along the way. There have been plenty of stories about him, but now it's his turn. So, Keith Olbermann, tell me a story I don't know. Well, how about I almost quit Sports Center in 1996 to go become a drive-time radio host in Chicago, Illinois? How about that? We'll start with that one. Yeah. Well, how did that happen? So, in in '96, which might have actually been the apex of my uh, and and ESPN's mutual unhappiness with each other and our success with each other uh, at that point for some reason and I can't have been able to find this out in any of my records or diaries or anything else 
but a fellow named Doug Stern, who was the, who was the general manager of WMVP. Um, and he, I believe he called my agent having said, you know, the guy we'd really like to have do our afternoon drive time here as we reconceptualize this radio station is somebody like Keith Olbermann. So why don't we start with Keith Olbermann and see if he's interested? And it was an intriguing idea because I really wasn't, I mean, I just wasn't happy for a variety of reasons at, at, at ESPN at that point. And it got much more interesting when, when he said, when we had a brief phone conversation and he said, uh, so what we're looking to do for the first year, and there'll be all sorts of bonuses and things additionally based on ratings, and we're in last place. There are 31 stations and we're 31st, so you can get most of these bonuses. He said, uh, we're starting with, as this is the, as the annual salary. And the figure he quoted, George, was twice what they were paying me to host SportsCenter every night. No kidding. No, no, no. SportsCenter was not a lucrative uh, thing to do then. Not really now. It's a lot better now than it was then. But I made like three times as much at ESPN in my last incarnation there where I basically worked two, three days a week than I did at the height of SportsCenter in the 90s. It just, it didn't pay because they were, you know, they had it, there was a buyer's market. So once he said this, it was like, well, I've always heard great things about Chicago and I've never, never been there. And at least I'll go out and see what's going to happen. And so I get out and, and go on this trip. And first off, Doug Stern meets me at the airport, which made a good impression and picks me up and takes me to the Drake and sets me up at the Drake Hotel, and we go out, and we have some steaks, and he's talking about the radio station, and they, they, they want a Don Imus kind of show, but instead of being, you know, politics and life, it would be sports and life, and they give me all sorts of latitude, and if, if, if I wanted to do a TV sportscast, a local one, I could do that too during the radio show and make a lot more money. So now we're talking about this, might be, this thing might have been worth four or five times uh, maybe more than that, what ESPN was, 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 uh, paying me and my contract was coming up at the end of 97 anyway. So we're at almost at the end of it at ESPN. And the more he took me around and the more he assigned two people to take me around in particular, the more I liked Chicago and the more this idea of doing a long, like three hour drive time radio show every day that would lead into White Sox games, uh, appealed to me. And we, uh, he put these two crazy guys, Spike and Harry, uh, <laughs> who you, you, you should identify them to your, to your audience. I know uh, who they are. <laughs> uh, well, you know who they are, but I don't know who your audience does. But they, they, were, they were like the primary hosts there. And these guys treated me like I was the Messiah. They were like, oh, my God, you'll save us. We won't be in last place anymore. And it was, and, and, and Spike said, and, and the, 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 uh, just summarize these two guys. Harry is super hyper. Uh, and Spike is just sort of deadpan. And Spike went, so you're staying at the Drake? I said, yes, it's a great hotel. My sister's getting married at the Drake. I said, that's great. Saturday, you want to go? I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm inviting you to my sister's wedding Saturday. I was staying like the three or four days and then the weekend. And he said, yeah, we could just, yeah. I said, well, I look kind of funny there with going to your sister's wedding when I've never met your sister. And he goes, well, uh, I, we can get you a date. <laughs> and he said, so I went to his sister's wedding and met her and had a date and met her. Uh, and this is, this was just the beginning of the hospitality. And, you know, I mean, this, there are very few places in America that are actually different 
than other places in America. And I, I don't mean politically, and I don't mean accents, and I don't mean food. I mean in terms of overall attitude. And I'd really never seen this before. To some degree, you see it in, in places in the Midwest, but I'd never experienced it where not only was the baseline behavior of people so fundamentally different in Chicago, but they were also adding to it by trying to sell me on moving to their community. And the attitude was, you're from out of town, have a beer. And that was it. <laughs> Everywhere I went, somebody was giving me something, a free meal, a beer, and I, they take me to bowls practice. And, and Dennis Rodman comes over and goes, what are you doing here, man? You already have a job. What are you doing here? You're, you're trying to get another job, aren't you? What are you doing? We're going to work for one of the stations here. And I went, will you shut up? And, <laughs> and, and so and I go to the White Sox game and they introduced me to everybody from the White Sox and then sit me in one of the nice seats and I'm visiting with, and it just went on and on and on. And the more we talked about how this was going to go, the more I liked it. It was like, very challenging, very lucrative. I looked into buying condos. It's like, wait, the cost of living in Chicago is only like 5% bigger than the cost of living in Bristol, Connecticut. Are you kidding me? And finally, Friday night, we were gonna go to dinner. The general manager, Stern and I were going to dinner and at five o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, I'm gonna tell him, let's try this. Let me see if I can get ESPN to let me go early. I think they probably will. Let's do it. And as I'm getting dressed for dinner, the phone rings and he says, uh, change in plans. And I said, what, what's that? He goes, well, the owners of the station came back from the corporate meetings and they've decided that being in 31st place, it'd be much easier and much cheaper if they simply took the station off the air rather than hired you for this enormous amount of money. Oh my so, goodness. So everybody that you're going to go to that celebratory dinner with tonight is fired, but they don't know that yet and I'm leaving for San Francisco for my new job at 8.30 p.m. So I'm sorry about the sudden notice, but I really couldn't tell you the whole thing. Bye. So I'm already, I'm already supposed to go to dinner and then meet uh, all, the, all these guys, Harry and Spike and every other host at that station. I'm supposed to meet them at, we're supposed to start at Stanley's was the name of the place. And I'm, and I'm like, I know that all of these people have a death sentence that they don't, they think everything has gone well. They think I'm moving here. I'm leaving on a plane in, you know, right after Spike's sister's wedding. <laughs> I wonder if they're canceling the wedding now too. I walk into Stanley's and it's dollar beer night and it's all guys and they all recognize me from sports center at the same moment. And they all take one half step toward me. So it's like, if they'd taken a full step toward me, they would have crushed me. <laughs> now it's 200 guys. It's, I, I'm like, I'm, I have to pretend to be happy. I have never gotten so drunk in my life before or since by like a 50%. I got so drunk, I had to write out where I was going at the end of the evening so the cab driver could understand me because I couldn't tell any of these people that I was, they were all going to be, they were- So they didn't know. They didn't know, and I, it was my job not to tell them that night or the next night. So oh. you, were, you were prepared, in yeah. essence, to become a Chicagoan. Yes. They had you set up for a date at the wedding, which means you had gotten married and had kids. That's what a fine. different life this would have been. I, I've, I've contemplated it many times. There, there's only three places that I go on my travels and have gone in the last 40 years where I I look around a corner as I'm walking through Boston, LA, and Chicago, 
where I'm walking in the street. And I figure, what happens if I turn this corner and another version of me is walking in the opposite direction? The one who stayed here, the number of things in one's life that, that are obviously pivotal uh, as they happen, but then become monumentally so in retrospect. I mean, I, my, I don't think I would have had a news career. I mean, conceivable that I would have found a different way to go into that whole line of thing in news and, and politics, but that would would pre precluded my going to NBC and MSNBC in 1997. That's an incredible story, but I, I want to move to baseball because you are an avid enthusiast of the game. Matter of fact, when I hear you talk about it, there's almost lust in your voice. So tell me a story I don't know, this incredible passion and fascination for the sport. I don't know quite know how to describe it. Uh, as, as Costas says, it's one of the few things in life that you can become loyal to and have an affection for in childhood, and you're likely to maintain that. And my affection for it, my, my uh, interest in it, sprang from one of those just trivial things. I had a, I had a birthday party, and I, I, I watched a couple of baseball games with my mom, who was a big Yankee fan. And I'd known that my grandfather had been a New York Giants fan and they didn't exist anymore. That was about all I knew. And, and one day at a birthday party in 1967, the kid, the kid whose birthday it was, Wolfgang Lebson, Wolfgang's mom, they were he was born in Germany and they'd moved here. And to be very American, they gave out as party favors for the kids, these packs of baseball cards. And every pack of baseball cards that year had a miniature poster folded up inside it. And everybody got a poster of Mickey Mantle, whoever he was, and Tommy Ag, and Brooks Robinson, and Frank Robinson. And my pack didn't have a poster. And I was like, well, that sucks. So the next time I had a dime, and I was in the store where they sold the baseball cards in my hometown, I bought a pack of the baseball cards because I wanted to see what I wanted my own poster. I felt ripped off. I felt denied. And by the second pack of baseball cards, I was hooked because on the back of a baseball card for an eight-year-old inquisitive kid is history, besides the baseball part, is history, geography, mathematics, um, a narrative of a world that has gone on for a hundred years that you didn't know anything about, uh, and these glorious posed photographs and the whole, the, the, the color, you can't explain to people who were born after really 1970 of seeing most of the world illustrated for you in black and white. But I, my folks, we were fairly well off. We didn't have a color TV till Christmas, 1969. So the baseball cards were in color and baseball, when you went to the game was in color and glorious, rich colors of the ball field. As everybody who's ever fallen in love with baseball has always said, that first time you go into a stadium and you see the green uh, you're hooked by the vivid colors of the game and then everything else falls into place and you appreciate the sport for what it is. And that's where, it's, where it all started. Also, if that first packet had a, 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 a pinup, a poster in it, I might have become, uh, I don't know, a, I could have become a basketball fan or something. You grew up with, actually when the Yankees dynasty was fading. So I'm oh, five. It had faded. <laughs> it, it, yeah, okay, it, it had faded. I'm five years older than you, so I got to watch when they would play the White Sox. So, so I got to experience Mantle and Marish and Tresh and Richardson and Howard and Whitey Ford and the likes. 
And yet you were a huge fan of Mantle, even though he retired, I think when you were what, something like nine years old. I know yeah. Bob Costas is a huge fan as yeah. well. So what was the lure? Um, well, first, uh, the easiest part of it to understand is that name is, is so uh, mellifluous for a kid in particular. I mean, it sounds like a name you would make up as a kid if you were populating a roster of imaginary ballplayers. There's a drive to left center. Mantle digging hard. Still going. Still going. Great And there's a shot grab by Nelson. Steps on first. And Mantle gets back to first. He's safe. And McDougal scores the tying run on an amazing turn of events. Two on and one out as Mantle rockets a tremendous drive to right center field. Burden goes back, 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 and then watches, of course, in utter amazement as the ball sails high over the 436-foot sign. No other right-handed batter ever cleared the wall at that point. You know, one guy would be named Mickey Mantle. It sounds like a, a superhero name. It sounds like something out of the comic books. And uh, I, I think that's what attracted me in the first place. The other part was when I evinced this interest in baseball at eight, and my mother was a Yankee fan, and she thought, well, good, we can go to some games. My mother and father decided to sit uh, by seats behind first base because Mantle had been moved to first base by then. This is when the, I became a fan the year after the Yankees finished last for the first time in 41 years. <laughs> so Mantle had been moved from center field because his knees were so hollow he could have kept spare change in them. And to extend his career a couple of years, they moved him to first base. And my folks took those seats because my father said, the most exciting thing and the greatest thrill you will ever have as a baseball fan is to be able to say, you saw Mickey Mantle play. It was, for a certain generation, it was universal and indelible. And I'll give you a quick example of this. I interviewed Mickey Mantle when he was selling some sort of video, some sort of how-to video in LA. And at the end of this interview, we stopped and we've gone longer than anticipated. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. He goes, no, I, no, I enjoyed it very much. And I was like, Mickey Mantle enjoyed my interviewing. I was eight <laughs> years old again. And then he said, listen, can I ask you a question? I went, anything, anything, sure, what? what you, e equals MC squared. That's the only answer I can come up with at the moment. He says, I'm gonna do some cable for the Yankees next year and I'm gonna be doing those post-game interviews. You, you did a great job with, with, uh, with these questions. I mean, you just flowed from one topic to the other. I really enjoyed it, and I don't enjoy interviews as a rule. And he said, uh, he said, can you give me some pointers? And I was like, Mickey Mantle just asked me for pointers. What the hell are pointers? I, I can't remember what it means. Mickey Mantle just asked me to do something. He complimented me. And it was that, I mean, I was, I was an adult. I had, you know, received paychecks and gotten takeout food and all, all the other adult, th I had a college diploma. And this was at, it, it, as just startling as if, you know, I had met him and he had said this to me when I was eight years old. As a baseball historian, do you like the direction the game is taking today? For example, bigger bases, banning shifts in the minors, balls and strikes not called by an umpire. It's a yep. different game. Yep, they're all abject failures, and the commissioner of baseball should be fired immediately. I mean, that's my personal assessment of him. But I think these ideas are, and baseball's owners and the people who've run baseball for 150 years have been unbelievably talented in finding the worst possible ideas. 
to inflict upon their fans and upon their sport. These may be the worst ideas any baseball set of executives has ever come up with. Uh, the ideas of tampering with the distance, the running distance between the bases, the idea of limiting uh, how often a manager can change a pitcher. We have the right um, to go to a three batter minimum for relief pitchers. Fan research shows one of the most unpopular things is minuting pitching changes. It would get rid of those changes. Um, we have the right to do that. We've negotiated that right with the Players Association. For football, that, that, that three batter rule, the football equivalent of that is to say to a football coach, yeah, you, you can run or you can pass, but whichever you do, you have to do it three times in a row. These are fundamental changes that probably won't accomplish what they want. And they seem to have been created by some um, research board or focus group or other bunch of people. And the, the, the cliche that I fall back on is it's the, it's the, uh, the camel being the horse designed by a committee. They're just moronic moves and they're done by somebody. I mean, people have asked this of me and I don't know the answer. Like, does Rob Manfred like baseball? I have no idea. I, I cannot judge it based on his, on his, uh, his uh, decisions. And, and these are sort of Frankenstein solutions to problems that don't really exist. But the, you don't like the shift? Well, you know, once upon a time, uh, fielding rules, the unwritten rules of fielding required the first baseman to stay uh, in touch with the bag at all times. So the first baseman played tight to the bag, whether there was anybody on base or not. Well, that, you know, that thing that that first baseman is now playing off the bag and grabbing those ground balls, that's been a hit for 50 years. We have to make sure that's still a hit. Well, no, it's stupid. Um, you play the defense where the ball goes. And if the batters can't figure out where and how to hit the ball to avoid those fielders, maybe they're not that good at it. And the other thing is every change in this game for at least 100 years has been to benefit hitters. We got enough hitting. We have all the hitting we can need. We have all the home runs. We if I if I if there were never another home run in the major leagues, I would have seen enough home runs to last me. These are all decisions that have been made to benefit hitters, and the whole balance between the game has been sacrificed for and also all the history of the game because you now can't compare anything from today to anything in the in the past, recent or distant have all been, you know, uh, sacrificed for an increase of one-tenth of one percent in the ratings on television, which is, you know, really stupid. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949, and it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches and also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online and you can have it shipped wherever you live. 
I've been shopping here for 37 years and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Keith Olbermann on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. So let me tell you a story you don't know about Keith and me, and it dates back to, I want to say, either 1979 or 80, when you were beginning your career. I was already a freelance journalist here, and one of my clients was UPI Audio. Uh, a moment of silence, please, for the now long-departed the UPI of United Audio. Press International. <laughs> it's gone. Its sports director was Sam Rosen, who still calls the New York Rangers games, one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever met. Anyhow, I get a call from somebody asking me if I have sound of Nancy Faust, the longtime popular organist for the White Sox, of her playing Na Na Hey Hey Goodbye. but I got the tape, sent it to this reporter. That somebody was 20-year-old Keith Olbermann, whom I would again meet up with when you went to the RKO Radio Network to work for the current Dodgers broadcaster, Charlie Steiner, himself a subject of this podcast. So where has this time gone? Yeah, that's kind of frightening. <laughs> I, I, I am comforted, and, and you know, I, I'm sure you are too, by the realization that Sam and Charlie are not only both still working, but both in prominent positions that require them to work, in fact, harder than I do. Um, I see Sam, um, obviously, in the last year, not at all. But before that, I see him all the time at Madison Square Garden. He is, as you said, the Hall of Fame voice of the Rangers. He came on um, one of my ESPN shows, and you know, I sort of apologized to him for being so difficult when I worked for him because I was a 20-year-old punk kid, and if you think I'm difficult now... Good morning. Three members of the Houston Astros named this morning to manager Tommy Lasorda's National League pitching staff for next Tuesday's All-Star Game. Top winner Joe Necro tapped by Lasorda, along with Joaquin Andohar and reliever Joe Sambito. Rounding out the staff, veteran Steve Carlton of Philadelphia and Gaylord Perry of the Padres, Steve Rogers of Montreal, the Cubs' Bruce Souter, and Cincinnati's Mike Lacoste. I knew everything then. I don't know everything now. But in the story with Nancy, who I also still know, is that you, you did, in fact, send that by mail because you fed it originally, but I wanted the, I wanted the highest audio quality. So you put the cassette in the mail. And, well, not only that, but UPI reimbursed you for the cassette, which was probably $2.89 and the postage. <laughs> and, and I had to get that approved by the general manager of the radio operation. But yeah, so, so I, we did, I was doing a feature on the then sort of brand new phenomenon of Nancy having taken this song, which I don't think originated with her, but which she popularized in a ballpark setting and made it into this big, you know, big thing to such a degree that literally an hour before we started this, I saw a TV commercial for trucks 
in which everybody's singing this song. Mm-hmm. Na, 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 hey, hey, kiss him goodbye. And Nancy, remember, I called Nancy up and did a phone interview with her, and she was very gracious. She remembers that. She was surprised. I remember that. And I was like, no, this was a big production number for 1980. I think we did it in the spring of 1980. And uh, that was that was one of our first uh, connections. And, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to have uh, friends of that vintage professionally and otherwise because obviously george you can't make new old friends when you were much younger you dreamed of a sports and news network before they were ever even established and lo and behold you wound up being part of both of them but before your first run at espn there was the fledgling cnn and i do mean fledgling so Mm -hmm. tell me a story i don't know about that experience in 1981 The most impressive part about going to work for CNN in 1981, uh, I guess, was I was working for Charlie at at RKO Radio, and Bill McPhail, who was the head of CBS Sports and the great friend of Pete Rozelle, the commissioner of the NFL, had gone to his bosses with an idea called Monday Night Football to put the NFL on in primetime on CBS. And they looked at him like he had three heads, fired him as head of CBS Sports, and the idea drifted off to ABC and the rest is history. So Bill was the first boss of CNN Sports, and one day they needed to hire a bunch of radio people to do the initial uh, sportscast on something that was going to be called Headline News. But a couple of weeks later, uh, their sports reporter was named Debbie Segura, and Debbie was dating a business anchorman in New York for CNN named Lou Dobbs. And this was interesting because Lou was also married. And it was even more interesting because Lou was also dating the bureau chief of CNN in New York, and he had a girlfriend. So it was a rather crowded <laughs> picture. And apparently one day, just as the 1981 baseball strike was coming to a close, they all met. And Lou and Debbie had to get out of town in a hurry. So Debbie and Lou got on a plane somewhere, and CNN New York did not have a sports reporter. And so now Bill McPhail calls him back up and says, "Would you, you know, if we gave you five hundred dollars, would you, would you a week? Would you work two weeks for his freelance?" And I didn't know enough about television to take the microphone off when I was done. I literally finished my first stand-up on TV walked away from the camera and knocked the camera over. I had no experience whatsoever. Just when you and I were getting used to daily pronouncements about the end of baseball as we know it, they went and settled the strike. Now you know what you'll see when you get back out to the ballpark, but before you go, something very important. Don't hurt yourself. They talk about players getting back into shape and umpires getting back into shape. The fans have to get back into shape too, so we've devised some simple calisthenics you should do before you go back onto the field. I took a one-third pay cut from part-time work in radio to go work for CNN on a five- or six-day-a-week basis. And then when they said, we want to give you a contract, they said, all right, so it's $500 a week, so that's $26,000 a year. And they offered me a contract for $25,000 a year. And I said, what, what on earth are you thinking? Well, you'll have the security. And I said, I'd rather have the $1,000 you're docking me <laughs> for signing the contract. And so Bill McPhail and I was like, well, hold on a second. I have to have... Let me call you back. And, uh, and I got a call back from him three hours later. We have to have a meeting with Ted Turner about this tomorrow to see if they'll give you the $1,000. I swear to God, mm. the next day they have a meeting with Ted Turner. It's like, we showed Ted a tape of some of your work. And he said, 
okay, give them the thousand dollars. But it took two days for them to agree and to pay meetings. me what they were already paying me. It wasn't a raise. You do stints in Boston mm-hmm. and Los Angeles, and then you joined ESPN in 1992. And eventually you were paired with Dan Patrick. Now, well, from the start. From yes. the start. Yeah. So we, we've always heard this term chemistry. So I think back to guys like Dick Enberg, Billy Packer, and Al McGuire. I don't think chemistry, Keith. I think magic. And that's exactly the way I think of you and Dan Patrick. It's, it was a different level, something very hard to quantify, very rare, but you know it when you see it and you hear it. So tell me a story I don't know. Why that magic worked with the two of you. Same old, same old, the basic flip and pike position, degree of difficulty 2.3, fan catch. Just another week. Another hoop off the top of the backboard. Mascot dunked from the ceiling, ball wedged in the rim. Diving catch, diving catch, diving catch. And nuns at the ballpark. So watch your temper, please. The key element to it is that Dan and I were contemporaries we had an overall if, if if life was a was a, a route through the forest we always would we always knew we would end up at exactly the same place whatever the forest was but we always took different routes so there was there were, he would go to the left and zigzag and i would go straight to the right or whatever it was and so our goals were identical our methods were always different and so we were presenting a unified outcome in a different way. So we complemented each other, but we did not at any point contradict nor duplicate each other. But practically speaking, when I left CNN to go to Boston to work in local TV and then to Los Angeles, the guy CNN set up from Atlanta to replace me was named Dan Patrick. So for a week in 1984, CNN New York had two sports reporters, me and Dan, and he followed me around and learned everybody's name and went to all the events and knew all the, met all the cameramen. And, you know, we had that in common and we had this week and Dan was at this epic going away party for me. And, and years later, I mean, we'd run into each other and, and every time, like when I worked in Boston, he was covering the NBA finals for CNN sports and he came up and I put him, I put him in my piece about visiting media. And I said, and where are you from, sir? And he went cable news network. And I said, what's that? And then cut to an on camera of me going, that's an inside joke. And then we moved on with the piece. So that was the relationship with Dan for about eight years. And then the ESPN people called me and said, we'd like you to do the 11 o'clock sports center of our people. Who do you think you'd work best with? And I said, I, I know Dan. And I think so. I think he's easily it. And they were asking Dan the same question. He went, you're bringing him in. I'd love to work with him. Because at the going away party, and he explained this to me, I had said to him, listen, you're very funny and you're very dry and you have a great perspective on sports. Why do you do this traditional missionary position sportscast and reporting? Why do you just do the facts? Put a little of that humanity into it. Put a little of yourself into it, even if it's only one sentence in a two-minute report. And apparently I said this to him at the going away party. And he said, eight years later, that this had changed the trajectory of his career and his life. And I said, so you took my advice, despite knowing how drunk I was at my going away party. <laughs> and that was, that, was the, the, that was the starting point. And the thing that made it 
if you want to use your word there, magic, was this. That show, that Sports Center in the 90s, as, we, as we've improved electronic capabilities and how people can put things on television, the stuff we did on that show in the 90s was impossible to do under the circumstances. When Dan would be talking, instead of you know, looking at a makeup mirror, as many of the guy, other guys that I worked with did, literally, when I would be talking, instead of doing something like that or filing my nails, I would be looking through the UPI and AP wires to see if there was some fact about his game that he didn't know yet that I could write down and hand to him while he was reading the score panel that would follow the highlights. And he would do exactly the same thing for me. That's how we did it. We did it that way every night for five and a half years. And in each show, we probably saved each other from a mistake or added to each other's not humor, not any of that stuff, but added to the baseline accuracy and up-to-dateness of the show. So there are, I mean, there are intangibles. You can't, you can't teach the timing between two people to know when to keep talking and when to interrupt and when to not interrupt. You can't do that. Um, that has to be based on something either larger or smaller than we are capable of understanding. But all the mechanics, you can actually, you can actually build teamwork. And if you build teamwork and you ha are a team, the, the results can be seemingly magical because you have so much uh, intellectual and uh, emotional energy left over that you don't have to worry about whether or not you're getting the basic facts right because you got a guy who's covering your backside. And that's what it is. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill? Then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry and look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, Sox and Cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, Condiments, and Classic Deli Meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. You left ESPN in 1997 in a rather unceremonious fashion, which has also been, let's be honest, part of your professional legacy. And I wonder if that's a case of you just simply being the type of guy who likes to push the envelope. I think there's two parts to it. One, there, there is a reason to analyze why I have left jobs. I want to thank my friends at ESPN, uh, particularly Norby Williamson and Jimmy Pataro, for releasing me a little early from my contract with the network so that I can resume my political commentaries. I have now left ESPN in every conceivable way possible. And while only once was it truly unpleasant, 
this time it is truly on very, very happy terms. And also the premise of it being a problem has been wildly exaggerated. I like to point this out. Every one of my employers, except for current TV, which only existed for about six years in this century, but every other employer, every other company that has hired me in the 21st century had previously hired me in the 20th century. So the, you know, the difficulty of, of uh, Mr. Olbermann as an employee is, is wildly exaggerated. Otherwise, ESPN would not have rehired me to the point where I have worked there five separate times. There's two components to it from my point of view about, about moving. One is you only go around once in life as the old beer commercial goes. So you have to grab for all of the interesting things you can get. And I, I like to do different things and they're all thematic. I mean, I'm not, I haven't been a broadcaster and welder. I've been a broadcaster, but I like the idea that I've been able to go back and forth from sports to politics, to news, to sports, to news, to politics, and to sports jobs, and sometimes two at the same time. I like that because it keeps me from being bored. On the other hand, I have done a show. I did a show at, at uh, MSNBC the second time. It was eight years. So, you know, the, the, the other thing about, particularly about leaving ESPN was that most of that ill will occurred long after I left. And it, it, it traces to two things, one of which was an error of omission. You're talking about the story you don't know. When I left ESPN in 1997, the guy who was my, my boss, the executive vice president, Howard Katz, said, if you ever want to do anything, if your contract permits you with it, when you're at NBC, if you want to do anything with ESPN Classic, or if, if, if you've got an idea for a special, or if you want to appear on one of our shows, call me. We'd be happy to have you back. And when I left ESPN in 1997, the chairman of Disney, Bob Iger, called me and said, I wish I'd known you were leaving. We could have made some sort of option for you to stay. Uh, you're welcome back at any time. And as crazy as those things sounded, I've gone back to work for them four times since then. So there was evidently some truth in it. But what happened was this. We called that Dan Patrick and, and me version of SportsCenter the big show. And we didn't call it because we thought other shows were little. It actually results from my having said to him in one of the first commercial breaks, Jesus, Dan, this show just doesn't stop. It's one big blank, 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 blank show. <laughs> and that became the big show because I, and we took the swear words out. Hello and welcome from World Headquarters. It's the big show and alongside my tag team partner, Dan Patrick, I'm Keith Olbermann. Coming up on SportsCenter, the rest of the National League is waiting for the Phils to fall from grace. The big unit makes its return for you Melrose Place fans. The mailman delivers our Sunday conversation, but we begin with rain on the reigning champs parade. Yeah, the, the fashion police among us should have known this in advance. Dan. In 1909, fresh off the back-to-back -back World Championships, the Chicago Cubs decided to get less cute. MSNBC wanted to call the news show that I was going to do for them in 1997 the big show. They wanted to play off that because we also had a book and I was identified with it and there was a song and everything else. And I said, let me call them at ESPN first so it's not a surprise. And instead they announced it. The Keith Olbermann's new show that premieres October 1st will be called The Big Show. And the ESPN people were like, are you kidding me? And I didn't get to call them first. 
And so that was me not, you know, I should have made the call earlier than I did, but they had told me they were going to announce it on such and such a date and I'd have plenty of time. I didn't do it. And that got them, and I think appropriately so, you know, kind of pissed off. Similarly, after that show went on the air, uh, there were a lot of people at SportsCenter who were very defensive, and one of the executives got a hold of the ratings for MSNBC after I started there, which were microscopic, and called the former TV critic of, the, of USA Today, Rudy Martsky, and read him my ratings for the first month that we did this news show, which was, on, I mean, 90,000 people at a time watched MSNBC in those days. There was nobody watching, and instead of everybody else, every other show had 90,000 viewers. We had 100,000. We were doing comparatively well, and this appeared in USA Today, and I called Rudy Marsky up, and he went, well, I got this number from, you know, such and such at SportsCenter. I was like, okay. So that is where the nuclear war started. Two little things blew it up, and it was nuclear war for about 10 years, and then they called me up, and they said, Dan could use your help on his radio show. Would you do an hour a day? And I did. And then, and right now, I mean, I, I was, I have, I'm in touch with the president and executive vice president of ESPN on a weekly basis on various things. So it's, it's not a, it, it's, it's ultimately it was, it, it, it was a little blip. I was really surprised because suddenly the guy that I really admired and enjoyed watching sports is suddenly doing news commentary and he's doing it eventually on a show called countdown yeah it was so different i'm thinking wow i've never seen a guy who's done sports like that do news like that and that was another side of you that obviously you knew you had and you wanted to do it here are countdown suffering nominees for tonight's worst persons in the world the bronze to mayor rob ford of toronto i know a good thing when i see it being a foreclosure mill law firm is bad enough. Batting visual abuse of your victims on Halloween. Poor choice. Scumbags. Today's worst persons. Nora. Well, I had uh, thought as a kid that wouldn't it be neat if there was an all sports network and an all news network, and I got to work for both of them. And I, I didn't really foresee being able to do both at the same time. But if you look at the history of broadcasting, until the advent of television, most of the key sports broadcasters were not just sports broadcasters. Graham McNamee, who was the original big-time sportscaster, did college football, did the World Series every year for, for CBF or NBC, and did the inaugurations and did the presidential funerals, and did the political conventions, and did the Harvard-Yale boat race, and did the, you know, the dirigible landings, having considerable experience, basically having, because of the overlap where I did both, I've had in 42 years in the business, I've essentially had a 20-year career in sports, a 20-year career in news, and another 20-year career in which I've done them both at the same time, the sports reporters in this country are so much better at what they do than the news reporters at this country that it didn't at all surprise me that, that I was fairly successful doing news and doing political commentary because the bar isn't that high in news and political commentary. The imaginations of the people who cover news in this country, and this spans political points of view, it has nothing to do with left or right. The imaginations of people in that are minimal. I mean, you know this. This is the Tim McCarver theorem. 
if you go to a ball game, particularly a baseball game, you will see something you have never seen before. And it may be trivial. In political coverage, it's exactly the opposite. Most political reporters believe that there are only 10 things that ever have happened, and there will only be 10 things that ever will happen. <laughs> and every story can get squeezed into one of these 10 templates because they can't allow for the possibility of an 11th template that they don't already understand the outcome for, and they don't, it's like, it's like being an actor who has only done Shakespeare. Uh, I, I think for the Republic, it would probably be better if the sports reporters and the news reporters, other than say the top 10 in each field, if all the other ones switched tomorrow, I think we'd have much better political and news coverage in this in this country than we do now. You know, I want to bring you back to Chicago before we end this thing. And I believe this is also from the news angle. You were at Soldier Field. <laughs> so tell me a story. I don't know what the hell you were doing there. And it wasn't for a football game. Good evening and welcome to Soldier Field here in Chicago, where we have definitely not gathered for an NFL preseason game. This season is fully underway. And thus, so is this exhibition, exhibition in the best sense of the word. Seven candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination joining me on this stage for a forum sponsored by the AFL-CIO. So it's, it's Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Chris Dodd, Joe Biden, John Edwards, Kucinich, and I'm leaving somebody else out. Uh, yeah, Edwards already made it. Well, they're all there, and I'm the moderator. And it's outdoors at Soldier Field at like six o'clock Chicago time in August. That's 144 degrees. <laughs> and, and it's so bad that they have built, they knew it would be like this. And it's so bad that they have built the stage over a series of gigantic air conditioning ducts. And everybody, all the candidates and your humble moderator are sitting, literally are standing or sitting atop giant AC ducts that are blowing up 30 degree air into our crotches. There's no other way to describe it. So if you've ever seen this thing, everybody's standing behind a podium, they're all standing square over an air conditioning vent, blowing up their legs. And it is, it, uh, my, my makeup has now melded with my skin because there's so much sweat going on. And just to make this, just to add one dimension to it, there are 27,000 AFL-CIO members in the audience, and they are all drunk. <laughs> so each time I say, would you hold your applause, they, they hear applause and get louder with their applause. <laughs> and, who, or, and this was the first time I tried to moderate one of these things, and it was one of those ones, one of those broadcasts, where at the end, as we, everybody files off, unannounced fireworks go off at <laughs> Soldier Field, and each of these seven candidates and I think we are under attack. <laughs> because it's 2007 and this is still a plausible end. I go over to the producer, I went, did you know about this? Well, yeah, but it, it's, it happened after we were off the air. It's still happening. <laughs> I knew they were bombing Soldier Field. There's another connection here to Chicago, only it wasn't in Chicago. But it did happen with one of its most famous voices and patrons of the establishments, the one and only Harry Carey. Oh, my goodness. At one o'clock every afternoon, there'd be a game at that Palm Springs Angels Stadium, Gene Autry Stadium. So it was a very wonderful routine. 
And one day I walk in and I see Harry, Harry is there. He's living in Palm Springs and I have never met him before. And he's over by the Cubs dugout on the third base side. And he's talking to somebody and his arms are going in the air. And I can hear his laughter booming across the field. And he's looking around and he sees me and I hear in the distance, hey! And I see Harry Carey as close to a full run as he could manage in this time. This is like 1989. Runs over to me and says, I watch you every night. <laughs> you are the absolute. I'm now he's, I'm being embraced by Harry Carey, which is not a unique feeling by, for anybody in Chicago, obviously. And I'm being embraced. Oh, let me introduce you to a few of my friends here. We now go from, I had things to do before the game started at one o'clock. It's probably about 11.15. Until the anthem was playing and he was still introducing me to, this is Steve. Steve sells beer here. He works at the Texaco downtown. He introduced me to easily 150 people. And there are lots of measures by which you can judge if somebody's had a successful life. But if you can go to a ballpark and introduce somebody to 150 people none of whom are ball players and you don't work at that ballpark you've had a successful life you know these are your they may be friends you only see once a year but they are your friends and that was my 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 fascination with the fact that harry enjoyed my work and watched it was wore off pretty quickly i was much more impressed by sort of keeping track of who these people were that he was introducing me to. And I was very impressed by that and remain so, and also remain uh, impressed by the fact that he could not summon my name at any point. <laughs> one of these people, you've seen him on Channel, channel 5. And, it, Hi, I'm, and I would keep saying, Hi, I'm Keith Olbermann. And then finally it'd be, Hi, I'm Keith <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Spell it for him? And Harry, of course, you know, it's, there's so much going on in Harry uh, that he was unable to retain that at that point. But it was, it was just, it was, anytime you're in Chicago, you're my guest. And I was like, I, I didn't realize, you know, that was sort of the law. All right. I was, this is, took place before my trip to WMVP. And uh, it was just, it's one of my great memories because it was, it was literally the only time that I met with him and he then went to, uh, to broadcast the game. And that was the last I ever saw of him. But I mean, it was pretty jam packed hour and a half right there. I conclude these interviews with this final question. If not for sports and news journalism, what would you have been? Um, more than likely an English teacher or a history teacher. And I, I, I actually did both in high school and not necessarily voluntarily. I had an English teacher who, was, who thought I got Shakespeare the way he did. And I had a history teacher who said to me as I was graduating, I know you have this sports thing planned, but you do realize you will be involved in politics someday. And I went, no, nah, I don't think so. And so he got that right. And he also later uh, was looking for guest speakers. It was his job late in his career there was to find guest speakers for the school. And this is how, looking to diversify, he managed to find this kid who was the head of the Harvard Law Review, who they brought to this little school outside New York City in 1989, I think. A fellow named Obama, who gave his first political speech at our school because my history teacher found him. 
like one day I walked in to my English class and my, my teacher, the English department chairman said, uh, you, you're going to be excused for this hour. I need you to go and uh, prepare. You're teaching my class to the juniors in an hour. I was like, excuse me? He said, yeah, we're doing Richard III. Here's a copy of it in case you, in case you haven't memorized it. I was like, well, why are you doing this to me? He said, I, I, think, I think you'll be good at it. And I said, I don't think I will be good at it. Among other things, I'm 15 years old and the juniors are all 16 years old, which was true. I won't bore you with that part of it, but it was true. I was like, they will want their money back. <laughs> and so I went out and taught Richard III to them. And uh, he was intent on my becoming an English teacher and said, when the broadcasting thing does not work out, give me a call. You'll be calling me for that job soon when they fire you. <laughs> so, I'm certain I would have become an English or history teacher. And, you know, I, I, I hope I still have some time left. Maybe I still will. I haven't, you know, changed careers in, you know, what time is it now? I haven't changed careers in <laughs> four or five years. So maybe. Thank you, Keith Overman, for telling me a story. I don't know. Always a pleasure to talk to you, George. My thanks to ESPN, MSNBC, and the now defunct UPI Audio for those great highlights. And big thanks to T.J. Reeves, who worked diligently behind the scenes to put this podcast on the map. Will Hatzel, whose deft editing makes this podcast sound a whole lot better. And T.T. Shinkin, whose graphics are an artistic delight. And thanks again to our sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market for their generous support. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.